Well, I told you we were going to do things in a little different order this morning than we normally do. And so what we're going to do is, um, even though we're still at the very early stages of our time together, we're actually going to jump into the book of James together now. And so if you're new with us, we've been taking a journey through a letter in the New Testament written by James, who's actually the half-brother of Jesus. This is possibly one of the earliest, if not the earliest written document in the entire New Testament, probably written in the early 40s, so just a few years after the resurrection of Jesus, in which James, who didn't believe in his brother as the Son of God, when he met his brother, Jesus, resurrected from the dead, came to fully believe and devote his life to follow and to serve Jesus. And so James becomes one of the predominant early church leaders in all of the Roman Empire because James was the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem, which was sort of like the mothership for all the other churches that were were starting and spreading throughout the Roman Empire. And so James becomes one of the most influential and key leaders in the early church. And in the early 40s, he writes this letter to a group of churches to provide encouragement for them. You see, James went through such a radical transformation in his own life. Because you can imagine how shocking it would be to see your brother, who claimed to be the Son of God, alive after you watched him be executed and buried. And so James experienced such a personal, radical transformation when he uh, came to devote his life to following Jesus that he wants others to experience this same radical, instant transformation in their lives. And so he writes this letter largely to describe and to discuss how the gospel changes who we are and how we live. And so right now we are finishing up chapter 3 of this five-chapter letter this morning. And so we're going to look at James chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 13. And so you can follow along with the screen as we have these scripture passages up every week. But as many of you hopefully know, we also have an event in the Bible app. You can scan this QR code on your phone right now to open up that event, or if you download the Bible app, if you already have it on your phone or tablet or whatever you have available with you this morning, uh, you can open up the Bible app, go to the main menu, click live events, and Element Church will be at the very top of the list because your phone already knows you're at church this morning. And so you can click Element Church in all the scripture we're going to read today, as well as some links that are associated with some of the announcements we'll make at the end of the service today are all available for you there. And so let's look together at James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure. Then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
And so as we do every week after having read that whole passage, we're now going to break it up into smaller bits for us to discuss together. And James starts this section that we're focusing on today with a rhetorical question. Now, I don't know if you've noticed up to this point, but James is actually a very skilled writer. He uses a lot of creative writing techniques to engage with his audience. He uses word pictures and analogies. He creates dichotomies to force his audience to see multiple sides of an issue and make a choice. And here, once again, this is not the first time in the letter, he asks a rhetorical question. Now, why would an author ask a question in a letter? Now, one possibility is because the author actually expects his audience to, to write back and answer the question. But James is not writing personal correspondence here uh, with an expectation that his readers are going to return a letter to him with their answer. What James is doing here is what we would call from the first century, he's writing a circulatory letter. It's very similar to how people today write open letters. When you write an open letter, it's to one individual or to one party or group, but you write an open letter so that everyone can read it, so that everyone can, can glean from it the information or whatever the purpose of that writing is. And so in many ways, this is a first century version of our 21st century open letters. And this letter is designed to be read in public in a church gathering, and then they'll pass it on to the next church in the next town for them to read. And so if James doesn't expect an actual answer, then he's asking a rhetorical question. Now, why would an author ask a rhetorical question? Well, it's because James wants his readers, that's you and me today, to answer it for ourselves, to listen to the question, to reflect on it, and then give some kind of answer. And so the question is for you and I today, are you wise and understanding? Now what's interesting here is that James doesn't assume what the answer is. He doesn't assume what answer you will actually give to are you wise and understanding? But what James does do is he assumes how you would want to answer the question. Now, if you think back to all the information about James as a person that we've talked about over the last six or seven weeks that we've been studying this book, you'll remember, and we even mentioned it earlier today, that James didn't believe that his half-brother Jesus was actually God in the flesh while Jesus was still alive. James was impressed with his brother, but not convinced. But just because James didn't believe Jesus was God in the flesh doesn't mean that James was an atheist. It doesn't mean that James was off worshiping and serving foreign Greek and Roman pagan gods. James was a devout and committed Jew, just like his brother Jesus what James struggled with was recognizing and, and coming to the place of agreement that his brother Jesus was the long-awaited, promised Jewish Messiah. 
It wasn't until after the resurrection that James was fully convinced. But as a devout Jew, James has a certain understanding of what these words mean that he assumes his audience also understands. Because in, if you look at the Jewish scriptures, which is what we call our Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures are full of teaching about what wisdom is, about what understanding is, and about why it's so important. And so I want to look at just a couple passages out of the Old Testament that illustrate this idea of wisdom and understanding that really is informing how James is writing his letter because James grew up reading these passages. James grew up going to the temple and listening to these passages being read and taught. And the first one we're going to look at is out of Proverbs chapter 1. It says, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so here in the opening verses of the book of Proverbs, which if you want to know what is the book of Proverbs, it's all about this contrast between the wise and the foolish. And in the understanding of the book of Proverbs, wise people are those who fear the Lord in awe and respect, who who know and serve and trust the Lord. Fools are people who live as if there was no God. So the opening verses of the book of Proverbs give us this picture where here wisdom and understanding are tied to righteousness, justice, equity, prudence, knowledge, discretion, learning, guidance, and the fear or respect and awe of God. Let's look at the next chapter of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 2. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you and understanding will guard you. Here, wisdom and understanding are tied to God's shielding and guarding, watching over us. Again, we see that wisdom is connected to righteousness, to justice, to equity, to goodness, to knowledge, to discretion. And so James asks this question, are any of you wise in understanding? He doesn't assume what the answer actually is, but he does assume what you would want the answer to be. That you would want to be able to say, yes. Yes, I'm wise. Yes, I have understanding. And so he asks this question, who is wise in understanding among you? 
And he says this, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Now, if you remember back a few chapters ago, um, in chapter 2 of James's letter, he talks about this contrast between faith and works. You see, for most of our world and our culture and our society, and even for all other world religions, there's this idea that, that there's this grand cosmic scale that one day we will stand before God or some gods and they will weigh our good works versus our bad works on this scale. And if our good works outweigh the bad works, then that means we're a good person and we'll be granted access into whatever existence or state or place that, that's waiting for good people. And that works is actually how you attain salvation. That if you're just good enough and you work hard enough and you're, you've got more good than bad or you, you're, you're better than the bad people around you and you surpass the average, then you're a good person and there are rewards waiting for you. And that works is what saves you and as you develop more and more good works, as you become a better and better person, you start to become more of a faith-filled or faithful kind of person. But what the Bible teaches is that actually none of that is true. That we're not saved by works, we're saved by faith. That we're saved by faith that on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for all of our bad works. That because we have bad works, no matter how they weigh in average of the good, that there's a penalty or a punishment awaiting those bad works. And that Jesus on the cross paid the penalty for those sins, for our bad works, for the times when we disobeyed and rebelled against the Creator of this universe for our punishment for committing cosmic treason. But here's what's crazy about what the Bible really teaches. That even this idea of good works versus bad works, it's not just that on the cross, Jesus wiped away all the bad. So that now on this cosmic scale, your good works definitely outweigh the bad because, well, the bad has all been wiped away. Actually, what the Bible teaches is that actually none of us really have good works. In Isaiah 64, 6, it says this, that all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags to God. That Hebrew term that we translate filthy rags is not a generic term. It's actually very specific. It's actually the kind of rag that a woman would use once a month, if you're tracking with me. I feel weird about saying too much because there are kids in here, and I don't want you to have to explain too much later. I don't want that to be on me. The, te the technical term that the Hebrew word means 
is women's monthly rags. Your good deeds, when, when set in comparison to the holiness of God, to his goodness, your goodness is like disgusting filth when your good is compared to his good. The beauty of the gospel is not just that God, through Jesus, wiped away the bad and left the good. It's actually much better. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What happened on the cross is not that Jesus wiped away your bad. It's that Jesus replaced his own perfection with your imperfection. That he took on your sin and my sin so that in exchange from what he took, he could give us his righteousness so that one day when you stand before God in judgment, God's not looking at your good versus bad. When he looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his own son, Jesus. That's the beauty of the gospel. That when God looks at us, he sees his son, Jesus. That's what Jesus did on the cross for us. That is the gospel. That none of us are good. No matter how good we are compared to others. Because compared to God, we don't stand a chance. But he imparted his own goodness on us because of his son. And what James teaches is that when you understand that, when you genuinely believe it, when you confess it, when you have that kind of faith, it changes how you live. That we are saved by faith, not by works. We're saved by faith because none of us can ever have good enough works. But if you've been saved like that, it will naturally change how you live your life. That good works will naturally flow out of you. And so this same idea is carried again here. He says, is anyone wise and understanding? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness or humility of wisdom. Don't just say you're wise and understanding, prove it. Just like he said in the previous chapter, don't just say you have faith, prove it. Not because your works save you, because they reveal whether you have real faith. Not because good works make you wise, but they show that you are wise. And there are two defining factors of real, true wisdom. Good works, good conduct, and humility. Now I know the word here is meekness, and I've already spent way too much time on the first verse today, so we've got to move on. 
But as you look and understand how meekness is taught in the New Testament, it's really about humility. And so wise people, those with wisdom and understanding, live lives of good conduct and humility. And so what James is going to do now is he's going to lay out for us what true wisdom looks like versus false wisdom. That there's a difference between false wisdom and true wisdom. And so we'll move on to verse 14 through 16. He's going to talk about false wisdom. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So there is a false wisdom. A wisdom that comes from this world. That's not from God. That's created and influenced by demonic powers. So what does this false wisdom look like? What does this kind of wisdom look like? produce and here's the list he gave us now it'd be easy for us to just assume none of this applies to us right I mean we're all good people we don't do these kinds of things I mean we would never be jealous of someone else right of course not we would never have selfish ambition We would never boast. We would never produce or condone disorder. Now, the other political party that we don't vote for, they create disorder and chaos. Ours certainly don't, right? I don't even care who you voted for. You know that doesn't apply to any of the political leaders in our country. But we would never condone or endorse or approve of such things, right? Of course not. And I mean, vile practices. I mean, let's be real, right? That's not us. And vile is a strong word, no doubt. But it's the most basic sense. It means immoral. It's about practices that aren't in alignment with biblical, ethical, moral standards and principles. We would never do these things, right? And so James asked that rhetorical question, and now he's laying out for us what false wisdom versus true wisdom is like, and he wants us to examine ourselves. Do any of these things exist in us? I want to answer, yes, I have wisdom. Yes, I have understanding. But are there parts of my life in which I've bought into a lie? And then here as he closes this section, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And here's his list of true wisdom. This is what true wisdom produces. Now, as you look at that list, does anything stand out to you? 
Here's what I think when I see this list. There's not a lot of that in our world. These kind of things don't rule the, the national conversations that we have. And our world could sure use a whole lot more of these things. But here's the deal. It's not our job to point fingers at the world. To just point out their faults and failures and assign blame. It is our job to bring these things to reality. It is our job to live these out. It is our job to be lights in the midst of darkness. It's not just our job to point fingers and blame. It's our job to make a difference. It's our job to be peaceable and gentle. We should set the examples of being open to reason and then showing mercy to those that we don't agree with. To be impartial and sincere. This is what real wisdom looks like. And what James wants to do is he wants to challenge us to look at our own lives And before we answer the question, are you wise and understanding? To look at what true wisdom versus false wisdom really is. And to be honest with ourselves about how we really embody the truth of the gospel and the wisdom of God in our lives. And I want to close it there. just with a moment to think about it, to reflect on it. Maybe to acknowledge and confess and repent of some areas in which you've bought into lies of the world and embraced the wisdom of the world. And there are places in your life that are products of this false wisdom. Maybe to examine what true wisdom produces to ask God for more wisdom. Because in James chapter 1, if you remember, he says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you not as perfect. And we are so thankful that That in our imperfection, you loved us enough to die for us and to impart your perfection on us. We're completely undeserving. And Lord, while the gospel takes root in our hearts and begins to change us, transform us from the inside out, a transformation process isn't done. And so we just want to confess our failures and our weaknesses and our shortcomings to you today. That there are times where we buy into the lie of the world and, and we're marked by jealousy and selfish ambition 
by boasting, by immoral or unethical practices. Lord, we repent. And God, you say in James chapter 1 that if we lack wisdom to ask you for it, and Lord, we ask you for wisdom, would you help to make us wise and understanding? to be filled with the fear of the Lord, and to live in such a way that shows the world what the gospel is really all about. Jesus, we love you. We celebrate you. We thank you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.